All right, grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8 in your New Testament. We've made it to Acts chapter 8. I've noticed this, maybe you've noticed this before, Acts 1-8 goes hand in hand with Acts 8-1. Have you noticed that before? If you're going to take the scriptures seriously and if you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then you're going to end up with some opposition along the way. Acts 1-8, if you do it, you should expect Acts 8-1. Acts 1-8 is the commission that Jesus gives to his followers. He says, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to go from Jerusalem, the city, to Judea, the county, out to Samaria, the next region out, and all the way to the ends of the earth. And if you're going to do this, you're going to end up at Acts 8-1. Acts 8-1 says, but a great persecution broke out against the church. Because you can't break into this world with all of its ideologies and its backwards value systems and its ungodly way of looking at, at, at yourself and at God and at the world, the ungodly outlook. You can't go into the world walking in the newness of life and not expect to have some opposition or some blowback. If you're going to walk godly in Christ in a broken world, you're going to have blowback. And Jesus said it would be this way in John 15. John 15 Verse 20, he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do, it's not because of you. They're going to do it for my name's sake because they don't know the one who sent me. They don't know God, and so they can't understand the ways of God, the thoughts of God. And when they see it in front of them, it's going to look like foolishness to them, and they're going to give you trouble. If you do Acts 1-8, you're going to expect Acts 8-1, a great persecution broke out against the church. As we get to chapter 8, we're also going to notice how Acts 8.1 is how Acts 1.8 begins to be fulfilled by the church. Because Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're not just going to do it here, but you're going to move out from here. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But so far, everything we've seen in Acts has taken place in Jerusalem, right? Everything we've seen for all of these chapters has happened right here in this one city. And it's been pretty exciting. I mean, could you, like... Try to get in the mindset and imagine the beginnings of the church. There's 120 people when you're in Acts 1 who are devoted to Jesus. And then, boom, there's 3,000. And then, boom, there's 5,000. And now there's 10,000. Now there's 15,000. And they are absolutely overtaking the entire city. Again, the population of Jerusalem at the time might have been 30 to 40,000. So they are just overwhelming the city, the beginnings of the church, and it's thrilling because incredible things are happening. There's signs and wonders and miracles and life change, and every day you're hearing something new about how God is, is giving life to someone who had been walking in darkness. Every day you're seeing a miracle. One day Peter's walking along and the the, the shadow of his cloak flows over a person, and they're healed. And you're like, oh my goodness, did you see that? And then the next day, Ananias and Sapphira just drop dead. And you're going, every day, something new at this church. And I love it, you know? I'm never going to miss. It's must-see TV, but it's real life. And so for them, thinking about going out from this place, why would you ever want to leave? The excitement and the amazing things that are taking place here with the church in Jerusalem. But... The Lord didn't want it to only be in Jerusalem. He didn't want to save a city. He wanted to bring redemption to the world. And so he said, go out from here. And so far, they haven't been going. They're not doing it. But now they're going to start doing it. And they're going to do it because of opposition and persecution. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Who was put to death just now? Stephen. We learned about this the last two weeks. If you missed, go back and check it out. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death 
And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the church, were all scattered out throughout the regions of, oh, Judea and Samaria, the exact places that Jesus had commissioned them all to be going. He had told them to do it. They hadn't done it yet. Now, the church is being ravaged. It's going to say that Paul is dragging people out of their homes. Saul is dragging people out of their homes, arresting them. And so they're scattered to the places that Jesus had told them to go. So the persecution is going to bring the distribution of the Christians, which is going to lead to the expansion of the kingdom of God, of his good news, of his glory, of his redemption, of his joy, of his peace, of his love, of his grace being carried out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And I want you to see this as, before we really get deeper as a history lesson, but more than a history lesson in understanding how we began, I want you to see it as an encouragement for us today that where there is opposition against the church, it is not something that impedes the work of the Lord. In fact, it's oftentimes a door through which the gospel will go. And, and that happened here. It was through persecution that the gospel left Jerusalem. And I know in our days, in the place that we live, we don't experience persecution like this. No one is banging on your door and dragging you out of your home, nothing like that. But it is becoming less of a place and a time for you to be openly Christian and accepted by the world at large. Am I right? There is opposition to walking in the newness of life, but the ideologies uh, and the values, and even more so just the life of Christ at rule and at work through your life. There's more opposition to that. And I want you to hear this encouragement. Wherever there is opposition, it does not frustrate the Lord's plans. He uses and takes that for his purposes. He uses it and takes it for his kingdom. The Lord makes out of persecution an opportunity for his mission to grow, to move forward, and for his kingdom of good and of salvation and of healing to move from where we are to all the places that we go. And I want you to see how this works itself out as we get into the text. Look at verse 4. It says, Therefore those who had been scattered, they went out preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was being said by Philip. And as they heard, and as they saw the signs which he was performing... For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in the city. And these verses right here give us a pattern for how we can be a part of what God is doing to move his gospel into our world, to change the world that we live in. There's a pattern here. It is the way God intended it to be. It is the way that the church moved from Jerusalem outward. It's the way the church grew, is growing, and will continue to grow. And I'll put it in one sentence or in one phrase. The way is this. It's church members, through word and deed, upending spiritual darkness and bringing joy to their city. That almost seems way too simple, but it, it's just laid out in front of us. It is through church members, through word and through deed, upending spiritual darkness and bringing joy down upon their city. And I want to just break this down into its smallest parts so you can see what I'm seeing here. I want to break this sentence down into bits. And it starts just with this, this phrase, with church members. Look at verse 1. Saul's in hearty agreement. He's with Stephen being put to death. Great persecution. People are scattered. Except who? Except the apostles. And Luke makes this point that the first time the gospel left Jerusalem and began to make its way out from that place, 
eventually on and on to the ends of the earth. It didn't go out by the word of the apostles. It went out by regular church members, just people like us. It says the apostles didn't go out. Why would Luke make such a big deal? or Why would he include this little detail here? We don't know what the apostles were doing. We don't know why they stayed. We don't know what they did when they stayed. So I think it's safe for us to assume that Luke is trying to help us shift our focus off of Peter and James and John and place our focus onto those who had come to Christ through the ministry of the apostles, just the, the regular guys and gals, just the folks like us who then would be used to carry the gospel out of Jerusalem, who would be used to carry out the commission of Jesus in Acts 1.8. Gospel didn't expand from Jerusalem by the by Peter, James, John, Andrew, these guys, by those who had been the leaders, by those who had been performing miracles and signs and wonders and preaching, but it, it, it moved through people like us. It moved through ordinary Christians who weren't holding leadership positions in the church. They just, in the face of what was going on, they had to go, and when they, they, when they went, they took the gospel with them. They went telling of the stories of what Jesus had done for them personally and what he had been doing throughout their community. And this is how the church grows. It's how it grew, how it grows now. And it is God's plan for how the church will grow in the days to come until Jesus returns. It's not by the preaching of a few anointed people. And we make such a big deal about famous Christians. I mean, my goodness, the phrase Christian influencer makes me want to vomit Preachers on, on pedestals being sold all over the nation, all over the world, just makes me sick. That's not God's plan. God's plan was this. The apostles stayed here. It was the church members going out from their homes, and as they went, they took the gospel with them. They were telling people of the good news of Jesus everywhere they went. That's how the gospel left Jerusalem. There wasn't some evangelism conference where Peter's like, hey, we're going to take this road, road show and we're going to hit every city along the way. We're going to have an awesome band and lights and smoke and I'm going to bring my heater. I'm going to give them the best sermon that I can come up with. I'm going to do that Pentecost sermon again because that one worked really well. It had nothing to do with that. It was ordinary people. It was church members. And they took the gospel with them when they went. Now, sometimes when we go out from the gathering, and we are scattered out as the church, occasionally there is that divine call where we just sense, we know God is saying, you need to go here. There's a place and a people and a time, and I, I'm sending you here. It is, it is the prescription that I'm giving for you in this time. And we're going to see next week some of that take place in the text ahead of us. But a lot of times, and like in this case, it's just in the course of everyday stuff that we go and, and we share the good news about Jesus. Here it's persecution that drove them out of their homes and took them out. And as they went, they took the gospel with them. And for us, it's any single thing that might take you out of your home and out into the world. Uh, who here has a job? Do you have a job? Go get a job if you don't have a job. If you, if you had a job, it's something that pulls you out of your house and it's one of those places that you don't all go, all go together in a group. You go and you scatter out there. And as you go, you take the Holy Spirit with you. If, you, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is with you. And Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you power for what purpose? To be my witnesses as you go. Some of you kids, you, you finished school this week. Thank goodness, right? Parents, oh, hang on, right? 
We're going to make it through summer to next school year. But as you go into summer, some of you are going to camps. Some of you are doing basketball camp or volleyball camp this summer. You're doing swim lessons. You're doing all kinds of crazy things. And as you go, you take with you, if you're a Christian, you take with you the gospel where you go, right? Some of you, when you go back to school, you're going to a new school. You won't be at the same school. You, you were in fifth grade. Now you're going to middle school this year. You're going to high school. Some of you graduated, and you're going off to college. Some of you have new jobs, or you've moved here, and this is a new city, or you're moving away from here. I've heard some people are moving, and you're going to a new city. Some of you, you've been working at home for a season, but your company is starting to say it's time to come back to the office. And as you go, wherever you go out from your home, you go carrying with you the gospel. And make no mistake, there's no like imagination work here left for us to do on how did they go, what did they do. Verse 4 tells us exactly what they did. Those who scattered went about preaching the word. It's church members through word. Preaching, probably in the best English word for us to use today here, there's a number of Greek words that are used throughout the New Testament uh, for preaching, but if I say the word preaching to you, you first thought you probably go to someone standing on a stage like this under some lights and they've got three points in alliteration and there's a monologue, or you think of like your mom preaching to you about how you should be living your life and you're doing it all wrong, or someone's preaching to the choir and we don't think of what's happening here. The word here is the word where we get evangelizing. That's the word they went about evangelizing, and that word. Definite, the definition of it exactly means this. It means announcing there is good news. It's to bring glad tidings with you wherever you go. If you want to read this literally, it would say something more like, those who had been scattered went about telling everyone there's really good news. Jesus is the good and gracious God who gives life, who gives joy, and who gives freedom. And everywhere they went, those who scattered went announcing there is good news and you got to hear it. One of those people is Philip, verse 5. Philip, this isn't the apostle Philip, this isn't one of the 12. This is Philip who we found in the early part of chapter 6. He was one of just the regular church members like Stephen who was called upon by the church to start serving food to the widows to help with service. Just a church member. It says Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And I want to pause here because we could rush through that and not realize the implications of how powerful this is, that Philip went down into Samaria and is preaching, is proclaiming the gospel to them. It's a powerful picture of what we've been talking about all year, that the church, that we, what we are, isn't a, a receptacle where everybody comes together and here's where the stuff happens. It's not a house, it's not a building, it's a people who are gathered around the gospel and carry the gospel with them. It's a people who are in movement, who are picking up and carrying on the mission of Jesus. Here, here's what I want you to see is Philip went into Samaria, and the Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with the Assyrians in way back, like 732 B.C., when the Assyrians had come in and conquered the Jews. And some of the Jews rejected the Assyrians outright, and some came to live with them and came to marry them, and they dwelt in this place for generations and generations and generations until they were their own ethnic group recognized by the world. They were their own ethnic group that the Jews hated. Pure Jews, true Jews, hated the Samaritans, the dirty Samaritans, and they wouldn't go near them. They would go around Samaria as they traveled, except Jesus. Remember Jesus? 
he made it a point to travel into Samaria because there was a Samaritan woman at a well that he needed to be before and say to her, do you know about living water? And that Samaritan woman then would go out through her community and say, you've got to come and hear what this man has to say. And I was looking at this this morning. In John 4, the Samaritans, Jesus talks with the woman. He, he tells her about living water. He tells her about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And she runs out and tells people, come hear what Jesus has to say. And it says, from that city, many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified to them. Right, And it goes on, it says, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you yourself have said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves and we know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. Right? So in Samaria, Jesus was there. He was sharing the good news. No one else, none of the Jews would go there. The disciples had been stopped. Jesus had said, it's not time for you to go there. But Philip, in verse 5, he enters into the heart and the ministry of Jesus. And he picks up the work that Jesus had begun there and continues it on. The church is the people of God entering into the mission of Jesus and carrying out his purposes. So Philip is here and he's proclaiming Christ to them. And this word highlights for us that he wasn't going into Samaria and saying, listen, you are doing some things really wrong here. And I'm going to tell you how you need to be living your lives. I'm going to tell you what needs to change here in Samaria that he was proclaiming Christ means that very clearly that he was declaring God's word about Christ to them. It wasn't his opinions. It wasn't his advice about life. He was proclaiming the word of God about Jesus to them. And he's doing this as a ministry of the word. It's church members through word and through deed. He was doing deeds. Verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip because he was doing a ministry of the word. As also they heard and they saw the signs which he was performing. Not only did Philip talk about Jesus, but Philip was committed to, he was giving his life to good works and good deeds being done among the community. Words and actions of grace, words and actions of love, words and actions not of human power but of godly power because the Holy Spirit was unleashed in his life and he was doing some things that Philip could never have done. But the Holy Spirit chose to work through Philip, to gain the attention of these in, in Samaria. It had been the apostles who had majored in signs and wonders and miracles before, right? Jesus did them, and then he had the apostles doing them, but now it's regular people. It's Christians who are just church members, who love Jesus, and who are committed to the Holy Spirit's will and work in and through their life, and the Holy Spirit is working through them, through Philip. And people are giving attention to it. Listen to this. Signs point to something, right? It's the very purpose of there being a sign is that the sign would point to something. If you go out this hall and you look up, there's a sign. And the sign says, kids ministry that way. The sign is there to tell you what's down there and where you should be looking and going. You pull onto the campus. As soon as you get in the parking lot, you see signs. It says, office entrance that way. Kids ministry entrance, that way. Signs are there only to point to something. And miracles and signs and wonders being done by Philip, by the apostles, by Jesus, were only there, not as tricks to entertain. They were there to point to the authority of Jesus over everything and to point to Jesus' purpose of restoring 
his purpose of, of reconciling, his purpose of redeeming all of the brokenness in this world. That's what signs and wonders were for. So any good works that Philip did, any good works that you and I do, any good deed that we do should be not in and of itself just a thing that was done, but it should be a sign that points to a Savior, to one who has done such great things for us and continues day by day, to pour out mercies and graces upon our life. And it spills out from us. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of the one who loves us most and who saves us. When we do good things, we do it out of the abundance of the good that he has done and continues to do through us. And because we walk in that way, when we walk in that way, it is true that every good gift comes from above. Isn't that right? Because we only work out of the abundance, out of the overflow of what Christ has done in us. And so here we, we see there's this plan, there's this intention, there's this way for the church to move forward through, through geography and through time to today and into the future. It's church members, through word and through deed, upending spiritual darkness and bringing down joy upon their city. Look at verse 6. Crowds, they're giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and as they saw signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, those spirits were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed and lame, they were being healed, so much so that the city was just overcome. They were overwhelmed with joy. They were rejoicing, much rejoicing in that city. Again, I want you to see that casting out spirits and the healing of the lame, these weren't tricks in and of themselves. They weren't mercies in and of themselves, but they were witnesses to the message that was being preached by Philip. And Philip could do these things. He could talk the way he did, not because he went to school for it, not because he, he sat for some years under the apostles and was trained up by them. He could do these things, not because he had spent time honing his craft. He didn't, he didn't do these things because he was a big shot. He did these things because he loved Jesus more than anything. He loved Jesus, and he was committed to Jesus' will in and through his life. He measured his days, and he knew what he was here for. And he was committed to the Holy Spirit working in and through him. Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Would you let me not be distracted by anything that would take away and steal away from abundant life or being fully alive in Christ? But would you fill me so I would know the newness of life, so I would know the closeness and the nearness of the Father who loves me? The power of Christ would be unleashed and the things that he did and has called me to do, I would do them in faithfulness. Holy Spirit, would you, would you work in me? This is why Philip, why Philip could do these things. And understand, Philip was a refugee in a hostile environment. You realize that? You think about this? Philip isn't free to go and do these things because Philip is living big in the world and he feels powerful. He's you know, in the majority party and he's recognized as a person of power. And in, this isn't... This isn't why Philip felt so free to walk up and just tell people the truth and just act and live in abundant grace. He was a refugee who had been run out from his home. He, he didn't get to carry with him his luggage. He didn't get to bring everything he owned with him. Doesn't look like he's even set up a new home at this place, right? It just says Philip left, but he was so abundantly filled from within in Christ, it just exploded out of him, right? It's like an Acts Four with Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, you better quit talking about Jesus. We're going to put it to you. And they go, we can't help it. I mean, I'd, I'd like to try for you, but I can't help it. It just comes out from me. Because what Jesus has done is so powerful and wonderful, I can't contain it. 
And this is what happened with Philip. This is why Philip was speaking this way and doing these things and why it was landing and bringing such rejoicing to the city. He loved Jesus. He was courageous. And he didn't second-guess himself while in Samaria. And there was a result. And I love what Kent Hughes said about it. He said, the prodigals had returned. Talking about the Samaritans. The prodigals had returned, and the Lord brought out the best robes, the most expensive rings, and the finest sandals. There was laughter now in Samaria. There was vibrant spiritual power in the Samaritan miracle. And what I want you to see is how the gospel had moved from Jewish territory, from Jerusalem, from the, the, the place where the gathering happened, out into Samaria. And what's happened now is God has begun to build a grace bridge between estranged people estranged peoples who wouldn't look at each other, who would go around each other on the street, who, who would never sit down at a table together, who didn't even want to remember that there was a shared history way, way back there. People who despised one another were being made one in Christ. And it was a grace bridge that brought Jerusalem and Samaria together in Christ. And it's a grace bridge that would move out from there and begin to include Gentiles. And we'll see that in a few weeks from now. And it's a grace bridge that continued through geography and through time to begin to include you and me. Each one of us who have come to know Christ have come because of that grace bridge. And now we're a part of this same story. It's the story of which we find ourselves in. And our place in this story, please understand this. It's not just to work hard, live to the end of your days, and say goodnight. Your part in this story is to join those who scattered from Jerusalem and do as they did, wherever you are scattered to go carrying the gospel with you. It is church members by word and by deed upending spiritual darkness and bringing joy down upon the city. There's another way to say this. It's everyone, help me, everywhere, all the time. You see that? It's laid out for us. Are you involved? Are you participating? As you scatter, are you going, carrying the gospel with you? Are you bringing joy to the city? Are you upending spiritual darkness wherever you go? And you say, Kevin, man, how would I go about doing that? How do I bring joy to my workplace or to my campus? How do I bring joy into my neighborhood? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Thanks, thanks for asking this morning. Start here. You go before God and you ask him to help you to see where, to show you where you might engage. Who is just laid out there and, and ready to receive the gospel? You go to your life group and you say, would you begin praying for me? Pray that I would understand exactly where there's darkness and how to upend it. And I would know exactly how to bring joy into the places that I inhabit. Ask them to pray for your understanding, for your courage, that it would land well. Ask for their help in praying about this for you. I, I emailed our staff this week and I said, how could people up in darkness and bring joy to their city where they work, where they live, where they play, where they work out? And they began emailing me. I give you a, a QR code up here. And you can find it also at legacychurch.org slash reach legacychurch.org slash reach, or just hit this QR code right now with your phone. And they begin sending me lots of different ideas about how you can engage where you work, live, and play with the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel. And I added at the bottom there uh, a place where you can add your own ideas. And so you can contribute to the community, to all of us, 
going out and sharing the gospel wherever we scatter from here. So go look at the list, get some ideas from the list, add your own ideas from the list so that we too will join those who scattered from Jerusalem, everyone, everywhere, all the time. Now, I'm going to move quick because I am I'm cooking, and there's a lot of verses left, and I will read as fast as I can. I, I read Fox on Socks this morning to get my, my mouth ready for this. I, I really did. Now there was a man named Simon. Not even with my kids. I just read it by myself. I just wanted to clarify that. All right? Now there was a man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic in the city. I said that right. He was formerly a magician in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. That's someone who gave themselves their nickname. He was claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because of what he had done for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, there's a turn happening here. When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. He followed Philip. He went with Philip. He traveled as Philip was preaching and doing signs and wonders. And he, as, he, as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, Simon the magician was constantly amazed because this was different. This was different than the tricks he had honed at his home and he had taken out and making money with. These weren't just tricks meant to dazzle. These were tricks that pointed not just to the one performing the miracle, but it was pointing to someone beyond the miracle worker. It was being pointing to the true miracle worker, the one who can save lives and redeem souls. He was astonished. He was constantly amazed. Verse 14 When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, two of the apostles who had stayed back. They came down and they prayed for these people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And maybe you wonder why that seems strange, doesn't it? Theologically, that seems strange because we have passages like 1 Corinthians 12, 13 or Ephesians 1, 13 that tells us the moment a person turns to Christ... That very moment, you receive the Holy Spirit who comes upon you, and He is the seal, He's the sign that, yes, your salvation is sure, right? And so there's a couple of of schools of thought of, of why this hadn't happened in Samaria yet. One thought is this, that these people at this point so far had been very interested in Jesus. They had come very close to Jesus through Philip's preaching and through the works that he was doing. Jesus had their attention, he had their affection but they had not yet placed the weight of their life upon Jesus. And so when Peter and John came, they clarified, and the Holy Spirit came. They came close, but they hadn't trusted fully in Christ yet. That's one school of thought. Another school of thought is this, simply that in the beginnings of the church, I mean, think about Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had not yet come, and yet there were 120 who were faithful to Christ before Pentecost. In the earliest days of the church, it was so important that people saw the unity of the church and that what was happening as the church grew was built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles whom he had appointed. And it wasn't all of these offshoots and different ideas and things that were going on, but it was vital at the very beginnings of the church that everyone understood all of this came back to Jesus. And so maybe Maybe most especially in a place like Samaria, it was very important where Jews would have denied Samaritans the right to really belong to this Jewish Christian community. 
Maybe it was even more important in that moment for the apostles' presence to draw that straight line back to Jesus in this moment. We don't know for sure, but this is what took place. It's history. Verse 17, they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. New Testament teaches us now, every one of us, the moment we turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of hands of the apostles, Simon offered them money, saying, give me this authority as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to Simon, may your silver perish with you. Let's say it in a more gravelly voice. May your spirit, may your silver perish with you. And your, I mean, he, he's not happy is the point. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. That's key here. This is a guy who said he believed. It's a guy who was baptized. Your heart is is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Here's one point that I want to make about this long story. And I think it's a really vital point for us all to understand. There is a difference between giving attention to Jesus. There's a difference between giving attention to the messengers of Jesus, the words that they say, the actions that they carry out, and giving your attention fully upon Christ. There's a difference between believing in and believing on Jesus. And I'm making a, a hairline uh, distinction between the two, but it's everything. It's absolutely everything. I think that Luke has included this story of Simon as a warning to us to understand Simon is someone who came very close to Jesus and began to take on some of the Jesus culture that was taking place in Samaria, and yet Simon hadn't given his life fully over to the control and the power of Jesus. And he isn't a lone wolf in this, right? We know someone else like this, don't we? Judas? was like this, wasn't he? Judas was someone who, who spent all his days walking physically with Jesus, eating meals with Jesus, praying with Jesus, talking with Jesus, singing with Jesus, doing miracles with Jesus, listening to what Jesus had to say with his own ears. He went out from Jesus and declared Jesus' words to others. He performed miracles by the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name with others. And yet, you and I both know that Judas was a guy whose life was surrounded by Jesus' culture stuff, but he was holding something back from Jesus because in the end he betrayed Jesus. He, he showed the truth. He wasn't all in. He was somewhat in, but he wasn't all in. And Simon is here as well, and he hasn't placed the whole weight of his life on Jesus. He has kept a foot off of the scale. I think Simon is a guy like Judas who wants Jesus in his life but he doesn't want to give up full control of his life to Jesus. Did you hear that? He wants some of that Jesus in his life, but he doesn't want to give up full control of his life to Jesus. He wants it both ways. He wants to give his attention to Jesus, his messengers, his word, his, his works, his deeds, but he also wants to have the spotlight on him. Look, I've got money. I've been making money doing magic tricks for a long time. I got money. 
I want to be in the spotlight. Remember, he'd called himself great. He gave himself the nickname, the great one, right? I want some Jesus, but I want to be great also. He's given his attention to him, but he's holding back. He wants Jesus, but instead of Jesus take the wheel, he's like, Jesus, you get the passenger seat. Jesus, hop in back. I got us. Let's go together. And it doesn't work this way. I heard a pastor say, if you're 99% committed to Jesus, you're still 100% in control. You hear that? If you're 99% committed to Jesus, you're still 100% in control because ultimately you decide which 99% you're in control of. And if you're in control of that, then you can change that at any given time. Could you imagine that in a marriage? If you said to your spouse, I'm going to be 99% faithful to you, that'd be 100% unfaithfulness, wouldn't it? Could you imagine attending a wedding and the couple's up front here and the pastor's performing the ceremony and says, I want you to share your vows with the husband and the wife. They turn to each other. They pull out their little notebook. They, I wrote my special vows just for you. And they start reading them. And somewhere in the vows they say, and I vow to be mostly faithful to you for most of our days. It's not going to work. And it's the same with Jesus. You're either all in, or the truth is, you're not at all. You're either all in or you're not at all in. Either you trust him and you bow before him fully or you're trusting him sometimes and you're saying there are other times, Jesus, I'm going to go my own way and I expect you to defer to me in those times. We're going to do a book this summer. Justin's going to do a reading, reading club book on the cost of discipleship. And in that book, Bonhoeffer says this, the cross is laid on every Christian as we embark upon discipleship we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. Listen to this. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. Make no mistake. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. It's not giving up the happy life for the sad life. It's giving up the life that really wasn't life for the true life that we were created for. Death before resurrection. Death comes before resurrection life. Simon wanted the life without the death. That was his problem. There's a difference between believing in and, and believing on, and I think all of us have to grapple with that tension. And I know that's a tension that I'm creating here. The difference between believing in and believing on, what on earth? How am I supposed to deal with that? How do I know? I think we're meant to deal with that tension before the Lord, to grapple with it. To ask his help to help us to see, Lord, what are the true intentions of my heart? What are the true conditions of my heart? Ask, Lord, have I come to the end of myself or am I still holding on tightly to some things? As long as I'm holding on tightly to things, I'll never walk in freedom. I'll never walk in the abundance of life. I'll never be fully alive. I'll just limp forward. And I'll have one good leg and one that I'm dragging behind me. We're meant to grapple with this tension before the Lord that we might be buried with him so that we might be raised with him, to walk in the newness of life. And that life only comes after fully depending upon Christ for life and salvation. Last verse, and then I'll finish. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, and they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The point is, the gospel goes forward. It just it just continues. And it still is today, that same movement, it's still going today. Do you know the gospel? 
Are you participating as those church members scattered, carrying the gospel with them through word and through deed, upending darkness, and bringing joy down upon the city? If you are, if you do, expect opposition. And when you see opposition, it's not a sign that you're, you're in the wrong, you're on the wrong path. It's a sign that you're in the wrong place in that this world is not your home. <laughs> We're here carrying a mission forward, and there's a home being prepared for us. Jesus will come again, receive us to himself, that where he is we may be also. So wherever you see opposition, just see it as a door for mission to go straight through and wrestle with that tension until you have peace with the Holy Spirit over it. Am I in? Just believing in some of the signs? Do I like some of the culture? Or have I laid my entire life upon Jesus himself? I believed on Christ. Can I pray for you? Lord, we thank you for your word and how it rings true, not just as a history lesson, but it's so prophetic for our day and so, so necessary for us to find our place in this world. We're reminded so much here of who we are. As we wrestle with that question again and again of who we are, we're those who are dearly loved and forgiven and accepted and redeemed and brought into your family, of our purpose to go and to carry the gospel everywhere we go into the day that you return for us. And I pray that this church, that you would push us, you'd kick us out of complacency, you'd move us out into the world, that when we invite someone to church, we're not inviting our lost friends to come and see the show, but instead we're bringing those who have come to know Christ because we've invested in them where we work, live, and play. And we're saying, we want to just welcome you into the family now. And Lord, I pray in the days ahead that that's something we would experience. It's fine if people want to bring outsiders in who don't know you. That's great. We praise you that they would be willing. But more so, I pray for days very soon and ongoing that this church would be bringing day in and day out, new people in saying, I got to tell you the story. This person has just come to know Christ and now we need to welcome them into the family. I pray that would take place in our day by your power and for your glory. Make us ready and make us willing. In Jesus' name, amen.